0: Hello, good morning, and welcome to this Institute for Government Expert Briefing. I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. So just two weeks ago, we assembled on this stage for an event titled How Not to Run a Government, the lessons from Liz Truss's first 40 days. Well, she only lasted 50 days in the end, but in that short time, we witnessed some of the most chaotic scenes ever seen in British politics, and by the end, a government that wasn't functioning. Uh, Mistakes were made, as Rishi Sunak, the new Prime Minister, has acknowledged. So today, at this event, we're going to look at how Rishi Sunak can go about fixing uh, the government and making sure it's functioning as effectively as possible. He's the country's 57th Prime Minister, and as lots have already observed, he's got a daunting in-tray. He needs to repair the damage done by his predecessor, unite his party, get the economy um, back into rude health, and lead, in his own words, a government which displays integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level, an area he's already running into trouble with with his new Home Secretary. So over the next hour, we're going to try and work out how he can go about achieving all of this, and I've got an excellent IFG panel with me today to talk about this, our Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, and then a trio of senior fellows, uh, Kath Haddon, Jill Rutter, and Sam Friedman. Uh, Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get going. This event is, as always, on the record and being live streamed. We're going to start with discussion amongst the panel, probably for the first half an hour or so, um, and then I'll leave as much of the second half for questions from the audience, both in person and online. And then we'll finish bang on 10.30. If you are watching online, please do send in your questions as early as you'd like. It would be great if you can include your name and where you're coming from for context. And if anyone is tweeting about the event, please use the hashtag (coughs) IFGSUNAC. So Kath, I want to start by talking about uh, where Sunak is starting from. Um, you're our resident historian. Um, just how tricky a situation has Sunak inherited? Uh, I mean, very tricky,
1: uh, but just, I mean, a word on, on Sunak getting the premiership. He is, in some respects, I mean, he's, he's achieved something that many other people haven't done. He, he went from being a what-if prime minister, somebody who was long lauded as a potential future prime minister, but then didn't make it through uh, the leadership contest, was um, forced out of it by Liz Truss, to then having that all reversed and he actually got in. When you think back at all of the sort of nearly prime ministers, uh, the counterfactuals who could have been, um, Rab Butler, Michael Heseltine there's there's so many littering political history and it is something that dominates a lot of politicians minds. somebody said that you know if every politician is some small percentage of their brain is always thinking i could be prime minister one day Uh, so in a sense sunak has proved that things can sort of reverse course and you can find yourself in the job even when you look like you're going to be out of it in terms of the inheritance though It is uh, very tricky because as we will discuss, you've not only got cost of living, economic crisis, all those things, you've also got a party and a political crisis. Uh, And where I think he will, you know, he has the potential to, to do best and find it easiest sort of ground is where those two are working in harmony with each other, where the impetus for his own MPs, for his political party is heading in the same direction as the things he's got to fix in the economy it goes without saying that the things that he's going to find toughest are when those two are in complete opposition with each other and he's gonna have exactly the same problems uh, that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson had in terms of that political party and the incentives that are driving them all in different directions as they look ahead to the next general election.
0: You've talked about Sunak having a kind of second bite at the cherry, getting the opportunity to be prime minister now. Do you think it's an advantage for him that he has won now rather than back in September?
1: Uh, politically, yes. I mean, obviously the, the situation is dire. It's not an advantage for the rest of us with mortgages, but um, for him politically, he's been proved right. I think if he'd won it back in September, um, he yes, he would have had the, the backing of more, more MPs than any other candidate and then the membership. But the party was still uh, a lot more of a, a sort of divided beast, almost going through this experience, the trust premiership, has to some extent brought them together a bit. So that's something that could work in his favour. But as we've seen, not just with Truss, but also with Johnson, it is very easy for that goodwill to then sort of fall down very rapidly when you make mistakes.
0: And Jill, one of the first places that he's departed from Truss is a pledge to stick much more closely to the 2019 manifesto where possible. Do you think that that's a, a good move?
2: Well, I think it's probably an essential political move in the sense that he'll be very conscious that he doesn't have a personal mandate. I mean, he saw off Boris Johnson, who was claiming that the reason (coughs) he should make a, a surprise return was that he was the sort of personal holder of that 2019 mandate. And I thought it was very interesting in his comments in Downing Street that he made that comment about this mandate from 2019 belongs to all of us, not just to one man, i.e. not just yours, Boris, ours, the Conservative Party. The problem for him, though, is that the 2019 manifesto uh, looks incredibly out of date because the 2019 manifesto was made before we concluded our trading relationship with the EU, the TCA. It was made before the pandemic. It was made before the war in Ukraine and before the cost of living crisis, it would have been predicated on the assumption that inflation would burble along at roughly 2%, that you could do this, you could do that, uh, that you'd have quite a lot of money to spend and stuff like that. So I think that politically, you can see why he is saying that and you know, acknowledging in a sense that he doesn't have the authority to do things very differently. You know, Liz Truss uh, tried that, failed. So it's a rejection of that sort of trustonomics approach as well but I think substantively to actually say by 2024 I want to have chalked up big wins on some of those election promises, you know, a stronger NHS, more police cracking down on crime, genuine progress on levelling up, I think is really problematic.
0: Yeah.
2: Sam, where are the spaces that you think he will deviate first from the 2019
0: manifesto?
3: I mean, where where won't he? I think the, the... the challenge, as as said, is that we're the big thing that he's going to do first is the statement on the seventeenth of November, um, which is going to involve some level of cuts to public services, which have already been cut effectively as a result of inflation, and that's going to make delivering anything in the twenty nine manifesto around policing, health, education, pretty much impossible. In fact, you know, it's going to be the opposite. How do you make? How do you reduce the services in a way that doesn't? You know, dramatically worsen people's experience of them, um, and I think that's going to prove impossible um, over over the next 12 months. So, so it, it's, it's more it's their their actual kind of job is going to be much more defensive than offensive, and you know, rather than trying to fulfil 29 manifest, 2019 manifesto, it's going to be how do we avoid making everything a lot worse given the um, given the sort of you know, the austerity that's coming.
0: In general, we'll come back to the economy kind of in detail shortly, but that manifesto always had some pretty big economic contradictions at its heart, didn't it?
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think as Jill and Sam have already touched on, even back when that was written in 2019, it looked like a manifesto you couldn't deliver on. on. On the one hand, it committed to fiscal discipline, balancing the current budget, having debt lower as a share of GDP at the end of the parliament whilst also not increasing any of the major taxes that kind of ruled out 55% of the tax base for getting any money from, whilst on the other hand committing to increases in the performance of the public sector, lots more nurses, more police officers, more investment um, commitments that people wouldn't need to sell their homes to pay for social care. So even in 2019 there was a contradiction between fiscal discipline and the pledges on public spending and as Jill said I think since then we've had the pandemic
0: and rapid rises in energy prices that just made it all that much more difficult. And so if the manifesto is one of the things he's talked about first, the next big thing he's had to do is the reshuffle, Um, Sam what's your, he's probably a a more experienced cabinet overall, Um, what's your take on the reshuffle, what do you make of it?
3: So I mean, the, the positive is that you know, clearly this is a stronger government than the, than the trust government was, which you know, isn't a hugely high bar, but nevertheless um, is good. Good to see um, he's brought back into cabinet a lot of people who should have always um, always been there. He's also, I think, made quite a sensible decision to bring people back into briefs that they know. So Michael Gove coming back into uh, housing and local government, George Freeman coming back into some science. Uh, Nick Gibb coming back into school standards, these are people who know their briefs uh, and don't have to learn them. And there's only 18 months left really of, of governing time, even if the election is sort of as, as late as it can be. Um, so you can't have new ministers coming in, learning an entire brief and doing anything really in that time. So it, does, it, it made sense to, bring, to bring, people, uh, bring people who know what they're, they're doing in those jobs back into them. That said, there's a couple of major qualifiers to the sort of good experienced cabinet um, one of which obviously is the Home Secretary, which we may, may come on to later, and he pretty clearly made a deal with Swela Brahman to, to give her the Home Secretary job again in return for her support in the leadership election, which I think was a, was a, was a big mistake, and he didn't need to do that. I think he'd have won anyway, um, and, uh, and we're already seeing the, the consequences of that. But also I think uh, it's got less attention, but bringing Gavin Williamson back is also quite dangerous to him, because Williamson obviously has uh, had to resign himself or been fired himself in the past for security breaches but also he's, he's, he's really not liked in the party, I and mean, he's, been, he's been a very sort of Machiavellian figure working for Sunak behind the scenes. He's probably gonna be in a sort of unofficial whip job now, um, but, but, but there'll be plenty of people waiting for him to trip up because he's upset a lot of, a lot of people who were Truss or Johnson backers um, in the past. So there's, there's a couple of appointments in there that you can see, see blowing up. Um, blowing up as well. But on balance, it is it is definitely a stronger government.
0: Yeah. And obviously the aim behind the, the reshuffle is to try and kind of unite the parliamentary party as far as possible. Um, Kath, chill. I mean, do you think that at this point the Conservative Party is capable of being united? Uh,
1: I mean, I think right now it, it's kind of existential for it to do so. I think, as I said before, it's about whether or not there are triggers that just pull people inevitably in other directions. because. Um, you know, some of them, they are looking at sort of survival in their own constituency, not just thinking about, is the Conservative government as a whole going to be, um, in uh, Conservative party as a whole going to be in government uh, after the next election? And so little things can make a big difference on that, big things even more so. Uh, and the fracking bill was a really good example of that, because it was a battle that didn't need to be had. Labour did very well of kind of forcing the Conservatives into that position but the handling of it as we've seen repeatedly in terms of uh, parliamentary handling in the last year or longer um, was chaotic and and exacerbated all of those problems so uh, I think you know Sunak does have to make sure he's not making the same mistakes that even Johnson made let alone trust of marching MPs up the sort of wrong hill Mm -hmm. uh, only to abandon them in a U-turn and Sunak is quite inexperienced in that sense as um, a party leader and also even as as a a minister. You know, it's two plus years, not that very long, that he's been chancellor. It was quite a meteoric rise, even by others that we've seen. Um, He's got a team around him of people who are experienced at working with him and quite experienced in government but they still need to make sure that they are watching for those things that, that might blow up because it is a very fractious party and it's not going to suddenly heal itself just because um, you know, they've managed to yet again change their leader.
0: Yeah, and talking of, um Learning from Johnson's mistakes, one of the things that Johnson really struggled with was building an effective Number 10. And, you know, reorganised it countless times. Um, Jill, what do you you know think Sunak should be doing on the on the Number 10 front? And do we know much about how he's planning to organise it? I, I
2: don't think we do know that much at the moment. He's brought over his principal private secretary, who worked with him at the Treasury. Um, which is sort of interesting. We used to always regard the principal private secretary as you know, providing a degree of continuity because you would inherit the one from the previous prime minister. That's the top uh, official, if you like, in number 10, but, uh, but apparently there have been four principal private secretaries already this year in number 10, so the permanent civil service is not providing that much stability, and I think that's quite an interesting thing to bring someone over because while, you know, in a sense, Sunak is bringing the person who sort of reinforces what he knows rather than the person who can help him with the stuff he doesn't know so I think it'd be very interesting to see how that works out how quickly he builds trust with the uh, rest of the number 10 team Liz Truss was quite sort of uh, disruptive slash destructive in her treatment of number 10 in that brief period that she was there she moved a lot of people created quite a lot of bad will by taking quite a lot of people possibly in the oversized, chaotic Johnson number 10, and moving them into the Cabinet Office. And I think it's very interesting to see whether they manage to reconstruct number 10. And one of the things I think they really do need, and this Bill's on Cass point, is one of the things you would say any Prime Minister desperately needs in these circumstances is a good political team in number 10, so a very good political secretary he really trusts, and a very good sort of parliamentary management team both inside number 10 but also in terms of your business managers. Because one of the things about, you know, you don't want to have, as Kath says, unnecessary fights with the party when you lose them. You also want to win your necessary fights. And I think as we look forward to uh, the November statement and things, there are going to be a lot of really unpalatable things for lots of people in the Conservative Party uh, in Parliament uh, to do it. And if they manage to lapse back into the sort of learned habit of rebellion and things like that that is not going to augur go well for the sunak premiership he really needs to knock them out of that and you know the conservatives once again become a sort of disciplined power focused party that uh, that they used to be but it's been uh, a lot of people there was a piece last week i think about whether with lots of psychologists talking about whether the party was now addicted to rebellion and chaos and things like that maybe in the same way as we are but uh, but it'd be very interesting to see whether he managed to get a grip back and instill discipline there. So I think he will need to look at the reorganisation number 10, think about how he organises all those sort of cabinet committee structures and stuff like that. But it's very difficult because I think, you know, Liz Truss hasn't made that easier because you might have thought with such a brief premiership there would be a relatively stable regime and actually I think it's quite a destabilised regime that he seems to be inheriting. Yeah. Kath, what would you like to see out of a reorganised number 10? Uh, I mean, that point
1: about the, the parliamentary team, definitely, um, because we keep seeing mistake, and including a sort of lack of experience or understanding of the mechanisms of parliament. You have got a parliament now that is um, very experienced, including the Labour opposition, of using the mechanisms uh, in order, as we saw with the, the opposition day debate, uh, or whatever that was, two weeks ago. Um, 10 days days. yeah it's amazing isn't it it feels like a year (laughs) 12 days Um, so you need people that understand that you need people to understand the sort of trigger points when you're taking legislation through you need people who understand the House of Lords uh, and the possibility of problems uh, there Um, I think I mean you know it's a cliche for IFG to say think carefully take your time but um, I think the fact that we haven't heard a huge amount of noises, he's just appointed a new director of comms Um, It sounds that um, Liam Booth-Smith is going to take over the Chief of Staff role. But we did say, look, find out what works for you before you start restructuring again, because um, he's bringing in a team, many of whom he's experienced at working with either in the Treasury or during the course of the campaign but you're still bringing in lots of additional people. You're still working out what are the, the roles that they need to play. And the big lesson from the Johnson Premiership is um, a number 10 that is just full of lots of different people all pulling in each in their own direction does not work effectively as a team. It has to be set by the top, um, you know, the tone set by Rishi Sunak, the way in which he operates, um, and the rest of the team needs to then work, you know, it's a, again, a cliche, in the same direction. Um, because he just doesn't have the, the room for manoeuvre, the room for mistakes um, that any of his predecessors had until it sort of
0: ended their time in office. <laughs> um, Gemma, I'm going to come to the economy in just a second, but Jill, I have one last question for you. Um, you know, we're talking about the reorganisation of the centre. Sunak you know, spent time as Chancellor um, before becoming Prime Minister. That's the second biggest job in British
2: politics. Do you think that will help him um, as Prime Minister or make things difficult? I think it's a help, particularly when the economy is the top item on your agenda. But, um, but as I wrote for IFG last week, it's still a very big leap to make. And I think chancellors underestimate that. I mean, notoriously, Gordon Brown really struggled to get his premiership going. He, he assumed that as Prime Minister, I think he sort of slightly assumed that it must be easy because Tony had done it uh, for so long Uh, and therefore it must be quite easy because after all he was Gordon Brown or whatever. Uh, But he really struggled to get the right people. I mean, we had two or three resets of number 10 under Gordon Brown and I think he was just taken aback by the fact that actually Chancellor, particularly in benign economic times, is really quite an easy job and probably an easier job than being home secretary or being in the spending department because you're in control of events. You make one set speech a month if you want to. You have your sort of two fiscal events. You actually, only really need one, but you have your two fiscal events. You set your spending plans for three or four years and stuff like that. And otherwise, you're really in control of everything. Whereas at number 10, you discover as prime minister, and this drives the staff in number 10 nuts, a huge amount of time is spent off on foreign policy because actually most of that's now done at head of government level rather than by the foreign secretary which is actually relatively insignificant role these days, sorry James Cleverley, um, so that eats up huge amounts of time and you are fending off issues, you, know, you will have to be thinking about what on earth do I do about the fact, you know, do I call elections in Northern Ireland or not, what do I do over here? Do, you know, he's already been blindsided by should he go to the COP or not? You know, as Chancellor, you don't get these sorts of issues piling up where everything you do has some major symbolic significance and alienates one bunch of people or another. So it's still a very big transition to make. And as, you know, one of the things that was interesting about Liz Truss was well, she'd actually properly done more ministerial jobs in the Cabinet than almost any other prime minister. I mean, she'd mm. shopped around, you could say, the lower ranks of the cabinet until she became foreign secretary, whereas Rishi Sunak's ministerial experience is incredibly limited. He's done a job in you know, what was then the housing ministry. He was very briefly chief secretary, and then he was chancellor. So he's not really, you know, and he's not been in parliament a really significant amount of time either, because he only elected in 2015. And he's not done that other sort of, you know, possibly in some ways the best preparation for the transition, which is to be leader of the opposition. So I think it's quite a big step and a real test for him. One of the really interesting things is can he do big picture? Uh, Because, you know, some of the stories that you heard were that even as Chancellor, he was much more comfortable still in the sort of slightly junior ministerial, getting across the detail, working out how things worked, rather than the what the hell do we do about inflation or the labour market and stuff like that. So I think it's going to be a big jump to see whether he can do it in really unpropitious circumstances.
1: Yeah, I, I was just going to mention COP. I think that's the sort of that's been the key test for him thus far, that and obviously the, the Home Secretary appointment, um, because it is that realisation that you need to be seen on the world stage and that also it's not just a sort of deciding whether or not to go to a factory opening or something like that. It's a, a huge deal and the, the reasons you give for not going need to be robust enough and they can't just be, I need to sort of stay home and keep an eye on what the Chancellor is doing. I need to my spreadsheets. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, talking of spreadsheets, Gemma, let's move on to the economy. Um, so the fiscal statement has been delayed, um, something that we called for. Uh, so presumably you think it is a good decision, but let's talk a bit about why it's a good thing that has
5: been moved.
4: Yes, I mean, I think it is a good decision to have moved it. I mean, essentially, because Rishi Sunak only came, came in a few days ago, the fiscal statement will set out the direction for borrowing debt, spending and tax for the rest of this parliament. So the idea that it would really have been credible or sensible for a new prime minister to have signed up to whatever Jeremy Hunt had decided before he came in it just isn't, it wouldn't have been credible or sensible, and therefore it wouldn't have necessarily given a great steer to anyone about what actually the direction of this government's fiscal policy was going to be. Um, I mean, as far as I could say, there were sort of three possible benefits to going more quickly. Um, the first, which some people talked about, was the fact that we've got the Bank of England monetary policy decision happening later this week, and So it might have been beneficial to them to know what fiscal policy was actually going to be that they need to respond to with monetary policy. The second possibility was just to reassure markets. We obviously saw government bond markets pretty out of control in recent times with Liz Truss and quasi Kwarteng's statements. Um, and thirdly, the benefit of putting out the OBR forecast would be that then the whole public debate could happen on the same terms. We've had a lot of different numbers flying around about how much does, how much of a black hole does the government have to fill. But actually, I don't think any of those three are really sufficiently strong to weigh against the fact that it makes sense for Sunak to take the time and um, figure out actually what he wants to do and what those plans are. Um, even on the 17th of November we're still going to be in a position where we're likely to have to wait until a bit later to get the precise details on how some of the public service cuts might happen Um, because delivering on those I mean we put out a paper last week on the difficulties there are going to be in really taking any money out of any services and figuring out how to do that may well take longer than three weeks. So
0: you brought up spending cuts this is clearly the most difficult thing that Sunak is going to be grappling with. Where does he make those cuts? Um, You know, which, where are the areas that you think will be kind of on the table that they'll be considering at the moment?
4: I mean, it does seem in a sense that everything is Mm -hmm. on the table. Um, I mean, the Sunday Times yesterday was saying that the only thing that's been ring-fenced is the NHS. I have to say it's not even clear to me what that really means. (laughs) I mean, the NHS normally gets pretty large real terms increases every year, so you're just ring fencing real terms freeze for the NHS that's already a pretty tight budget for them so it does seem that everything is on the table including things like defence spending um, which Ben Wallace was making a big defensive play against under um, Liz Truss. I mean quite a lot of rumours coming out over the weekend for example on cuts to capital spending that seems a fairly obvious place for this government to turn. Um, As I alluded to earlier the 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 plan so far is to actually ramp up capital spending very significantly compared to what we've had in the last decade in the UK. Cutting that back would be one way of saving money. It's been a common tactic for governments in the past, trying to find savings because you don't notice the costs of that very quickly. Capital projects deliver benefits over longer term. Um, Also rumors that uh, benefits bill is back on the table so do do they or don't they stick with the current plans for indexing either working age benefits or pensioner benefits in the triple lock Um, but when it comes to public services as I say we may talk a bit more about this Um, there are no obvious easy cuts here we've had a decade of public sending cuts under George Osborne and some of the tactics that were tried that well pretty much all of the tactics that were tried then um, will be almost impossible to do again. So George Osborne relied quite heavily on holding down public sector pay. Um, We're already in a position where the NHS and schools are facing industrial action, struggling to recruit and retain the kind of staff that you need in a lot of key services. Um, Efforts to kind of try and push the workforce harder, again, similarly will be hard when morale is already quite low in some of those services. Um, Some of the options for trying to find sustainable efficiency improvements in services actually I mean it's a bit of a cliche but often those things require money up front to try and achieve longer term savings so that will be quite difficult Um, and So most, a lot of services are in a much more fragile state now Um, as colleagues who've been working on our annual performance tracker have pointed out that kind of the combination of cuts in the 2010s plus the pandemic has left those services pretty fragile. So it's not many
0: easy choices. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. As we said in our our piece last week, this is nothing like 2010. Um, Sam, given that, where do you think they will be looking and and I guess on defence in particular, um, how bigger issue is that likely to, you know, pose for the Conservative Party?
3: So overall, I think you know, the, the one that we know is coming is, is foreign aid will be kept at 0.5%, yeah. which is a, a sort of saving, uh, pushing past the 2025 uh, deadline for when it was supposed to be restored. Um, I'm fairly sure capital will be will be cut quite a bit, as as Gemma says, even though in many ways, economically speaking, that's the worst cut you can make because we're so, you know, one of the big problems we have around productivity is our infrastructure is so poor. Um, but, it, but, it, but politically, it's one of the sort of few things you can do without, without causing too much chaos. So if you look at sort of the school estate or the hospital estate, it is starting to cause real problems, the lack of investment um, in capital. But in some day-to-day public services, as Gemma says, there's just no, no space. I mean, I know the DfE were asked to model 10% cut across their whole budget. And, and the letter they sent back is not something you would be able to do politically, just it isn't. So I don't think the DfE is going to be cut 10%, but I think that will be true across department after department. So I, I suspect it will be things like foreign aid and capital and then actually quite a lot on tax rises, um, uh, which is you know, things like the windfall tax, the bank surcharge, which is going to be politically a lot easier than spending cuts. Yes. Um, defence is quite interesting. Obviously, Ben Wallace and, and Rishi Sunak do not have the best of relationships. And there was some speculation that Wallace would be moved out of the role um, when Sunak won. Obviously, hasn't taken that decision, has felt that would be too disruptive, presumably both within the party and, 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 and re-Ukraine as well. Um, but I see very little chance of any commitments uh, being made in this fiscal statement to higher defence spending. And I'm guessing, and I'm not sure, that what they'll do is sort of set out a very broad, high-level envelope for the 2024 spending review, um, which will enable them then to meet that that fiscal target. Um, And and if you sort of put defence up considerably within that envelope, then you have to cut something else even more. And I I think it's quite unlikely that they're going to do that. Um, The question is, how much does Wallace fight it? The... Um, Ministry of Defence are pretty adept at fighting spending reviews, are we going to start getting the Daily Telegraph front page with generals say this is the end for our army, um, which is what you usually get, uh, or or is he going to sort of accept it as part of the the sort of wider collective responsibility of where where the government is economically?
0: I also wanted to ask you about levelling up, Sam. Um, Michael Gove is, you know, back in post um, the Secretary of State at DLAC. Leveling up was a huge part of the Conservative pitch in 2019. Is it possible for Gove to actually make something coherent out of leveling up in the context of spending cuts, when they're even talking about, you know, HS2 being on the table in terms of cuts?
3: No, no. Leveling up has never been coherent, and and isn't going to be in the next 18 months. I do think Gove will probably will do some useful things. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a private renters bill, if he brings that back, is, is yeah. a good piece of legislation that. Um, it was one of the very few things in the in the last Queen's speech that um, that was that was worth doing, um, uh, and and I think you know he may also sort of bring some renewed focus to, to sort of planning and housing uh, as well. But but the Leveling Up White Paper was was a was a mess, and it was a mess because there has never been a central coherent idea around what it means. Boris Johnson certainly didn't have one, um, and and Gove wasn't able to impose one then, and won't be able to impose one now when. When we're in a position where we're talking about cutting cutting infrastructure spending and and so on,
2: I was going to add that some colleagues of mine at uh, UK and Change Europe uh, released some focus group research on what people thought levelling up meant. Um, uh, they did it on the day that Liz Trust stood down, so perhaps didn't get the attention it might. But its big message was if you ask people what they wanted in levelling up. They said they wanted c- local crime tackled, and they wanted a better health service. So the idea that there's a sort of different mm. agenda for levelling up, which is divorced from the big public services, is you know, is quite difficult. I mean, people like the places they live, they like parks and things like that. But actually, if you ask what do you want levelling up, they wanted better public services. Yeah.
0: I want to, I'm going to go out to questions in a minute, but I just want to talk a little bit about standards and integrity too. I um, said at the start that Sunak has, you know, pledged to bring back kind of integrity, professionalism, accountability. Um, Kath, what, what are the kind of first steps he can take to actually achieve that? Well, he need
1: to appoint a, an ethics, uh, independent ethics advisor for, in the first instance, as we have been without that since Christopher Geit um, quit earlier in the year. Um, and I think to do that, he's then got to change the role so that at least the person can uh, initiate their own inquiries because if, if somebody takes the role without that now, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to sort of continue operating. And he needs to do that urgently because they're already starting to pile up. We've got a number of questions uh, about the Home Secretary, both um, what happened the last time she lost her job, uh, but also what's going on at the moment. and you know, it feels like already the relationship in the department has broken down. Um, If so, you're going to end up with more and more sort of creeping out into the public domain. And as we have seen time and time again, once that kind of ethics um, problem controversy rears its head, it is very difficult to to put a a stop to it. So, um, yeah, he he needs it. And and also, this should be a good sort of, you know, reason why you want it. It's not just to tell the rest of us, show the public that um, you've got somebody independent doing it, it's because it also distances you. If you are the person that had to bring her in because she was you know, key, to, or you thought she was key to, to you getting the premiership in the first place and you don't want to alienate her supporters or the people in the, your party she you know, represents, then it is much easier if you can point to somebody else who's telling you, unfortunately, she can't remain in the job. Um, At the moment, you've got a situation where, as we saw throughout the Sue Gray inquiry, that role is falling to civil servants, or rather it is being conflated as it being the role of civil servants. And when they are, all they can do is actually just advise rather than tell the prime minister you really must get rid of them. It is much more difficult to do, and it puts them in a really tricky position uh, on, on their relationship with the prime minister, their their role as a civil servant. So uh, the longer we go without that position being filled, I think the more damage it's going to do to how you sort of conduct these internally and I think more damage it will do to Sunak's premiership. So yes, you should resolve that swiftly, my advice.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to um, take some questions from the audience now. I've already I can see I've got lots coming in online, but I'll ask the room first. Um take questions
5: in kind of twos or threes. Um, that. Hi, I'm Tony Travers from the LSE. Um, fascinatingly calm discussion of unusual times. And I was just looking up, we've had a, we're going to have a spending review. We had another, we had one last year, and a spending round in 2020, and a spending review in 2019. So what used to be a three or four-year process is now an annual one, and indeed this year, within year one as well, then reversed. So, in effect, so does this suggest that the problem of controlling public expenditure is now so challenging that these year-by-year incremental announcements with lots of pre-signaled changes are, in a sense, a management technique rather than a process of controlling and indeed planning spending over three and four-year periods?
0: Oh,
2: that's no,
6: just a mic coming, John. Sure. Don't think you need to wait for them just. A... Hi. Um, nobody's mentioned um, Europe or Brexit yet, and I mean there's a sort of fairly binary choice here, right, which is to prioritize not you know, re-establishing a positive relationship. Um, Which would help with a lot of things economically but also with channel crossings for example and one gets the impression that sort of sunak's basic instincts are that way he's not someone who wants a a a war you know a trade war or a diplomatic war with france or the continent um and there's some pretty obvious gains to that there's one obvious downside which it means taking on um, those people who really want to blow up the Northern Ireland Protocol, as opposed to make some sort of fairly modest uh, but useful changes to it. Um, which way will he go? Thank you. Genuine
0: you question. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then just one over there.
4: Hi there, uh, Namgal from the LSE as well. Uh, Wondering if you guys could comment on the, uh, uh, the new government's position broadly uh, in regards to China and its uh, policy on uh, continuing um, Truss's rating of China as a threat, uh, what the position of the newly appointed securities minister might be, and uh, yeah, how uh, Rishi Sunak um, might differ from his summer rhetoric. Um, and his stance in government regarding China. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Gemma, I'm gonna to come to you first on Tony's uh, spending question.
4: Yes, um, very good question, Tony. I mean, there are some good reasons why we might've had more regular updates to spending plans in the last few years that major things happened that we didn't expect to happen. And during the pandemic, it was, a bit hard to see beyond the immediate demands to kind of set that three-year spending totals Um, but I think you're right there's an extent to which also repeated reopening of the envelope and changing plans has also reflected to an extent that some of the spending plans that were laid out were just implausible in the first place and governments you kind of saw that with the 2015 spending review as well that money got topped up later on Um, so I think there is a real we are now (coughs) kind of past the pandemic we can see what the broad outline of demands is going to be on the public services and a real there is a need to set more realistic longer term plans so that services can actually make multi-year plans because you're inevitably going to spend money less well if you're not certain what your budget is going to be any more than a year out it's very hard to kind of figure out how to allocate money most effectively if you think you're going to be asked to suddenly hand back 10% of your budget or um, make other cuts
0: or you're suddenly thrown a load of extra money that you didn't expect to get. Thank you. Jill, do you want to um, come in on Jonathan's question on Europe, Brexit and Sunak's approach yes. in that space?
2: but as Jonathan I think probably would predict I'm going to disappoint him because I, uh, I don't know what Sunak will do. Um, what do we know about SUNAC? We. Uh, heard stories within Cabinet that he and Michael Gove were more sceptical about the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill than Liz Truss and Boris Johnson perhaps were. Uh, But we also know that during the conservative leadership contest, Rishi Sunak was recommitted to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is going through the Lords at the moment possibly on quite a long time scale because it's likely to come back very, very substantially amended. The European Research Group said that both candidates, uh, when Penny Mordaunt was still in the race last week, had committed to them that if necessary, they would use the Parliament Act to get the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill onto the statute book, but that's obviously even further off because that would mean uh, you had to wait for another, another session. So nominally, at least, uh, Sunak does seem committed to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, but uh, last week he did seem to have quite a positive conversation from the briefings out of it with Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, seems to be building actually to an extent on on perhaps one of the pluses of Liz Truss's premiership was more positive relationships with Europe more generally. Uh, so it's not at all clear where he thinks he can end up. I will offer him suggestion that one or two of us have made that maybe both sides should agree to remit the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol to some sort of uh, more open process and bring in a third-party mediator to actually look at how you try and uh, try and reconcile some of the sovereignty issues, some of the practicalities, things like that, and actually have something that at least allows all parties to acknowledge that their voices have been heard in the process. It's very interesting. Jonathan Stevens wrote something about how the the voices of parties had been ignored in all these negotiations that go on behind closed doors, so you didn't get any sort of sense of ownership there. So I think that might be quite a good suggestion. It's out there for you, Rishi, if you want to take one earlier. The other thing that I think is really interesting uh, that various people have been sort of wondering is... How much of an enthusiast is Rishi Sunak for the retained EU law bill? This piece of legislation introduced by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who ended up surreally having to speak about it from the back benches last week because he just resigned, and another minister had to introduce it, which is about to go into committee in the Commons, having had its second reading last week. We'll also get a mauling, I predict, in the House of Lords, but sets this sunset on all EU law of the end of 2023. We saw during the leadership contest, but Rishi Sunak seems to be doing quite a good job of disowning commitments he made in the leadership contest uh, after the sort of, you know, where he was in a sense chasing Liz Truss um, things. He'd outbid her 2023 deadline with a review of everything within 100 days. Uh, Maybe he should do a review within 100 days and conclude that retained EU law bill actually isn't going to help provide a stable environment for business investment etc and decide to just bin it. So there's a question mark about how keen he is on proceeding with that. One of the things that's interesting about the retained EU law bill is that it potentially makes solving the Northern Ireland protocol harder because the more that the UK uses that to divert diverge from EU law the deeper the Irish sea border and the more complicated it gets to find a a number of agreements that can plaster across some of the things that are most egregious examples of the operation of the protocol. So I don't know where he is. Uh, I think the mood music seems much better, both with Truss and now with Johnson, with the EU. Uh, He'll need that on migrant crossings, and he's already talked about trying to cooperate with the French on that. So it'd be very interesting to see where that all lands, but I don't think we know enough about it yet. I'm. Not even sure he knows, because he does know Steve Baker, smilingly saying he was pro-Sunak on the TV studios um, eight days ago, also said the ERG would implode his government if they went soft on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So he knows he's got that ticking time bomb sitting there, and he may want to judge how strong his position is when it actually comes to that, whether he can force them into some sort of compromise if that's what he wants to do.
3: I was just gonna add one small point on all of that, which which I agree, which is I think that some more experienced foreign policy people within the government, um, and there has actually been some quite a lot of consistency between the three uh, prime ministers in this one area, hmm. if nowhere else, um, have spotted a bit of an opportunity around France, not just because of um, Our need to get support on channel crossings etc but also because they're falling out with germany quite badly at the moment there's a bit of an opportunity for us to build a stronger relationship and a bit of an alliance with france around that so i do think there's going to continue to be quite a lot of warm language between britain and france over the coming weeks whether that turns into anything solid given the problems within the tory party we will see
0: sam i wonder whether you wanted to come in on the china question as well
3: well, I think it sort of follows on from that. You know, Ben Wallace is still in place. John Bew, who's the foreign policy advisor in number 10, is still in place. He's stayed there since Johnson. Um, I mean, cleverly obviously was appointed by Trust, but has been kept in place. It, it's not an air, foreign policy is not an area where Seneca said very much at all, or ever really expressed very much interest. Um, clearly, uh, prime ministers get dragged into foreign policy in a way that chancellors don't. But it looks at the moment like he's trying to almost outsource foreign policy and, and keep it more or less where it was without any substantial changes. Um, But I don't think that's going to be a sustainable position. He is going to be brought into these, these conversations. He's going to have to decide what he thinks, whether it's about the EU, whether it's about China. But I don't think he has very strong views on any of these things at the moment. It's not what he's done in government.
0: Thank you. Right, I'm going to pick out some questions um, from the online audience, and Jill, loads of them are about net zero. Um, so one, just to give you a flavour, uh, Sunat claims to be going back to the manifesto, but a glaring omission is his rhetoric on net zero, one of the party's key commitments in 2019. Why do you think he is so ill at ease with arguably one of the most important issues of our time? And I mean, I suppose I would add to that, is it a mistake that he didn't commit to going to COP? I,
2: I think... I think we're not clear at the moment about the Sunak position on net zero. I think it's quite interesting how unclear we are about that. I mean, as Chancellor, there was always a sense that he was rather dragging his feet. Um, he didn't seem a particular enthusiast for the Treasury's own net zero review. His budget last year, this time last year, contains some sort of one useful measure on, uh, on business investment in energy efficiency, which the CBI had asked for, but it contained other things which didn't look particularly consistent with the, gov- uh, with the government that was very enthusiastic about net zero. During the leadership campaign and when talking about the energy price guarantee, and it's very interesting to what extent was this motivated by net zero? To what extent was this motivated by reducing the cost of um, supporting people on energy? He did mention energy efficiency, which was notable absence under Liz Trust. See whether anything comes through on that because clearly there is quite a good economic case now for promoting energy efficiency. I'd be always quite a good economic case for doing that, but he did seem a bit more comfortable than that. He's kept going the Chris Skidmore review of net zero. This is something Liz Trust commissioned. Uh, Chris Skidmore is notable for being the convener of the net zero support group in the Conservative Party, as opposed to the net zero scrutiny group under Craig McKinley, who are the people, because there is a battle, ideological battle going on in the Conservative Party over positioning on net zero and the net zero support group claims it has more people than the net zero scrutiny group uh, that they claim is a bit of a minority interest. So I think it's interesting where it goes there. His record as chancellor was frankly all over the place because he introduced things and then, you know, the Green Homes Grant is uh, is the textbook case that you will use to teach bad policy making when you've done with teaching the Green Deal, as I do as a textbook case of bad policy making because something that was introduced as a pandemic measure and then cut off its needs. So I think it's very unclear for all his rhetoric about how he gets it and is very pro it and his kids nag about him. His kids probably do nag him about it, but he's not instinctively someone who embraces it in the way that Boris Johnson, I think, did and was keen to go and keen to be seen at these international big events. Um, I think Rishi Sunak probably thinks that, while the optics not going to COP27 are quite bad, the UK will probably come in for quite a lot of stick at COP27 about some of the commitments it's not followed through for, some of which can be traced back to Sunak, not least on climate finance and things like that and his 0.5% aid uh, aid cut, so I think he might be a bit reluctant to expose himself early on on that. Uh, his his reason for going, which is I've got to be poring over the spreadsheets or whatever, is slightly as chancellor actually. That's sort of what you've got a chancellor for. You're making the big political calls, not the spreadsheets. But you certainly wonder. Well, if you looked at your diary there was another date available for your autumn statement. You could have shoved it back to the 23rd of November uh, just as easily, and that would have meant you'd actually have a bit more time before the OBR has to close down all the numbers, and you could have just put in your day turning up at the COP, met President Biden, met President Macron. He's also going to the G20 mm-hmm. in Indonesia. So I think it's you know it sent some of the wrong wrong signals there to bits and actually I think he's landed himself in the worst of all worlds because the principal reason not to go uh, was arguably defensible and quite appealing to some of the people who are a bit suspicious on him. I think there's a Daily Telegraph leader today saying it's right right not to go. A principal decision to go would have been good and if you weren't going to go maybe you had to sort of unleash the king instead if you really want to look supportive. Um, But principal dithering or unprincipled dithering lands you in a sort of, you know, is this just a prime minister who's going to be bullied into diary management and just looks a bit inept uh, in your first week? Yeah. Gemma,
0: I've got a question on um, institutions, um, particularly uh, Bank of England and OBR. Is Sunak's government likely to have a more positive and trusting relationship with those institutions uh, than his predecessor? Um, From what we can see so far, that does seem
4: to be the case. but we'd already got to a point with Liz Truss where she'd had to row back hugely and show a lot of support and quasi-quoting as well for the OBR and the Bank of England and respecting their credibility and independence. But it does seem that Sunak is off to back in a more normal place, asking the OBR to produce a forecast alongside what he is now calling an autumn statement. So we're back to kind of more normal terminology around these fiscal events and a more normal policymaking process. Um, I mean with the Bank of England it's very, I think it's very interesting at the moment what we're seeing because in a sense this is sort of the first real test we've had of that kind of independence of fiscal and monetary policy since the Bank of England became independent in the 19, like in 1997 because the the real benefit of monetary policy independence is in circumstances where the right answer economically is to tighten monetary policy, hike interest rates at a time of economic weakness. And so you can, if you cast your minds back to kind of pre-Bank of England independence, you could well imagine at the moment if a chancellor had been in charge of interest rates, they would have been very reluctant to hike them in the current circumstances. So I think it's very interesting seeing this play out about the benefits of Bank of England independence and how the government deals with that when their inclination is to try and pump up the economy and cushion the cost of living at the same time as Bank of England's pulling in exactly the opposite direction.
0: Thanks, Gemma. Um, Sam I've got loads of questions on education um, but one of the ones that I want to focus on is technical education so Sunak's, you know promising kind of more reforms um, in this area I suppose kind of two questions is there really money to reform technical education at a time that budgets are so squeezed and is it a policy area that needs more reform given how much instability has suffered over what the last kind of 20 years or more?
3: Yeah, so I think he that this is the area of education that he is interested in, uh, and he's appointed Gillian Keegan, who, uh, who who I think he has been sort of tasked with with, with focusing on on the sort of post sixteen technical education as her primary uh, her primary aim. Um, but I don't think there's actually that much more space for any more reform. They've just introduced a new qualification, T levels, uh, which has only literally started this year, um, and is gone okay, though has, has plenty of teething problems and there's a lot of issues around exactly which group of young people it's really targeted at and whether that many will be able to access it or not. Uh, so that, so they, they, they need some focus on making T levels uh, effective and, and, and working. Uh, there's no money to build any new institutions. We're talking about capital cuts. There's certainly no money to build lots of um, shiny new um, colleges. Um, so I, I, I suspect it will be more of a We've, we've started a bunch of stuff, let's try and make it work, then let's do a whole new set of uh, reforms. And He also um, has, in his leadership campaign, supported this idea of the British Baccalaureate, which was something the Times Education Commission uh, pushed, which is a, a, an alternative to A-levels where everyone does some math, some English, uh, a, a broader range of subjects and some sort of creativity stuff. Um, uh, which I was entirely unclear what it was supposed to achieve. But anyway, um, I, again, I think I mean, it's very unlikely that we're gonna see anything in that space. There's no time to introduce or design a new com- uh, qualification of that, of, of that complexity. Um, and there aren't any math teachers for the, for, the, for the maths that we already teach, let alone for uh, uh, post-16 as well. So um, I think actually in education, what we're gonna see is a, lot, is a sort of consolidation rather than a lot of new policy.
0: Thank you. Okay, and one last question that I want to ask the whole panel. There's been a lot in here on public trust and how they can go about restoring public trust. Tony, you said you, we were having quite a kind of calm conversation in a chaotic period, and you're right. It has been an incredibly chaotic period and one that you know, people have really suffered um, during. And so as a result, there's clearly a need for government to go about rebuilding that, that trust with the public. Kath, I'm gonna to come to you first. If there are one or two things that SUNAC can do to go about starting to rebuild that trust, what, what are they?
1: I mean I've already talked about integrity and ethics and so forth that is important because and it goes to your point about institutions Then we need to get a consistent message from our political class that actually they value institutions um, because a lot of those depend on the authority of politicians to be able to do our jobs we've got a great piece uh, coming out as part of our constitution review uh, soon i 'm not sure exact publication date uh, looking at the kinds of different organizations in our constitution that almost act as guardians, whether they are sort of um, you know regulators for different parts of it or whether they are the major institutions of our our politics and democracy uh, and so I would like to see it 's not just down to, to rishi sunak I think it 's down to the political class more generally, um, for them to be reinforcing uh, those institutions uh, and sort of understanding that they are the lifeblood of our democracy. Um, You can't just sort of govern on a vibe without um, some kind of deeper organisations that sit underneath it and actually turn it into practice.
2: Thank you. Jill. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, you know, Kath set out the first step that Sunak could do, which is to fill this vacancy as an independent ethics advisor. And Sunak may have the advantage that someone's prepared to do the job for him in a way that I think Boris Johnson might have found it quite hard to find a, you know, third person who's prepared to do that job um, and have their resignation in their back pocket. Uh, So I think that... But I think it's really interesting, can he get ahead of this and actually do something to sort of say, you know, Actually, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the person who cleans this up properly. Would he do that, you know, perhaps by offering, uh, offering to Keir Starmer the chance to actually jointly establish some sort of review of actually how do we strengthen all the safeguards, not just on sort of ministerial behaviour, but some of the stuff we saw at the way the civil service was behaving that emerged through the pandemic, some of the way relationships between ministers the government and parliament you know about disclosure of information stuff like that and you know maybe he maybe they agree that they ask you know a dream team of Theresa May and you know Gordon Brown who's doing the review already for care someone somebody else some big beast to actually do a thing to say look we recognize that the reputation of all of us has been tarnished by the events, not, you know, a wholly owned property of the Conservative Party and the Conservative government. Reputation of all our institutions has been tarnished by the last events and we are going to seriously act together to put that right and do some proper institution building. Anyway. Sam.
3: So I think there's a slightly broader point, which is that since Johnson came in in 2019, this government have not been able to figure out how they get, want to appeal to the sort of authoritarian voter segment which voted for them in that 2019 election. Um, and what they and they keep pushing stories out that they can't do anything about actually achieving. And I think that's really eroding trust with a group whose trust in politics was already very low, which is why they sort of voted for Brexit and so on in the first place. You know, there was one at the weekend, not gonna ban woke policing. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any, it, 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 and, and if you think that is a problem, nothing is going to change as a result. So all that does is it annoys sort of liberals and it annoys authoritarians because nothing ever happens either. And I think that has really played a bigger role than, than perhaps it often comes out in, a, in eroding trust over the last three years, along with all the sort of crises and scandals.
0: Thank you. Gemma.
4: Um, so I'm terrible Politics. there's a good reason I'm not a politician, so I'm not gonna (laughs) attempt to guess which way they go on this one. But I think for me, there's a sort of slightly a choice that they have about whether to, on fiscal policy and public spending, do you muddle through to the election with the current approach, by which I mean, continuing to kind of, as Boris Johnson did, say that you're going to achieve all the things that people want, whether it's levelling up or good quality public services, with, whilst you know that you don't really have the money to do all of that. Um, so you keep saying it and then assuming people don't quite notice that you don't have a long-term plan for doing this. And similarly, I think we have a, when we looked at the economic forecasts back in March, we were in a position where there was going to be a real cost of living squeeze this year mm-hmm. as energy prices went up and incomes didn't keep up. In a sense that's been put off until next April because we had a load of one-off announcements so even though benefits didn't go up in April there were one-off handouts to people on low incomes there have been one-off handouts for our energy bills so there's all sorts of policies that have sort of seen us through this year on cost of living crisis that are going to come to an end in next April so again do you do something that long-term gets people's finances in a slightly better position, things like actually increasing in benefits in line with inflation, or do they go with more one-off things which look like that makes public finances better but is only a temporary kind of sticking class? So I just think there's a bit of a choice about how he approaches these contradictions of does he keep trying to muddle through or actually front up and say, look, we can't have everything we'd like,
0: but we're going to do, this is our strategy for it. Brilliant. Thank you. So, muddling through all big strategic choices. Um, I'm sure we'll have another event on exactly that very soon. (laughs) Okay, so we're at 10.30. um, We're going to have to draw this to a close. Um, Thank you to our excellent panel um, for brilliant insights on what's to come over the next few months. Um, And thank you to all of you for uh, both in person and online for joining us this morning to talk about this and for all your questions. Um, Please come along to the next IFG event um, in this series. Cheers.